Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody today. Have you, uh, one of those things that I like to do, ah, guys, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to do this because I can't see anybody over here. And not that, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Tyler. Don't get mad at me now. There. Now I can't see you guys, but maybe I'll wander over here every once in a while and just wave or something. Um, do you ever go to like Pinterest? Uh, you know what Pinterest is? The, the, you know, it's a, it's a, how do you describe Pinterest all of a sudden? The black hole. Is that what you just said? <laughs> it's a place where everybody puts their like craft ideas or whatever, an inspirational. You could say like, yeah, an inspiration board to see what kinds of things you want to do. They'll put crafts up or recipes or makeup tutorials or things like that. And, and so they'll put these things up there and they'll have, you know, step-by-step instructions as to how you're supposed to accomplish some of these things. And they'll put a photograph of what it should look like when you're all done. And, and, but you know, oftentimes as life goes, something gets lost in the translation. And so sometimes you'll look at the, the Pinterest fails and, and you'll see that how some of these things come out looking decidedly different than they uh, anticipated them looking. I feel like this sums up my Christianity. Whoops. This one, <laughs> I got a quick, this one right here sums up my Christianity a lot of times. This one, uh, yeah. I have this ideal of what the child of God can be like, uh, but uh, that's pretty much how I feel a, a lot of the times. We have got this whole faith where God has, has gone about trying to reveal himself to us, but stuff gets lost in the translation and, and, and things get misunderstood. And, and instead of having this thing of my life looking like we think the picture of it should be, it's a little off kilter. Sometimes it's a lot off kilter. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that, something like that uh, today. We're coming back to our study in the Gospel of John. If you'd like to follow along with me, if you'll head over to John chapter 12, please. Last week, we read about Jesus entering into Jerusalem, accompanied by people waving palm branches and calling him king. And Julie did a great job of expositing that passage, didn't she? And, and, and she pointed out that Jesus was doing things decidedly differently than the way the, that the people of Israel were expecting, but also decidedly differently from the way that the kingdoms of this world operate. And in that uh, previous section, Jesus indicated that the events that would lead to his death on the cross had now been set in motion in, in the things that had unfolded there and how his choice of sacrificial love was also going to be a pattern for us, how it is that we were going to find real life, a real whole and fulfilled life in following his pattern of sacrificial love. Now in our text today, the narrative continues and it flows directly from that last section. The context is still, still going to be Jesus talking about his upcoming execution, his upcoming sacrificial death. But in the passage that we're going to read today, God makes himself known in a powerful way. I mean, it's amazing what happens and yet it still results in a lot of confusion. And it seems like a typical thing, not only... You know, in just John's gospel, we've talked about how confusion and misunderstanding is really thematic in John's gospel. But it's really true for the whole biblical narrative. And honestly, it's true as we look back on the people of God historically as well. We as the human race have a lot of difficulty discerning God and his ways and determining how to follow that. 
Remember, one of the reasons that John wrote this gospel, he told us that at the outset, was he, he was writing this because he wanted us to know that God had given the fullest revelation of himself through Jesus. In other words, if we want to know what God looks like, then we look at Jesus. We take a long, hard look at Jesus and what he said and what he did and how he lived and carried himself. Um, So in this chapter, which is in a section called the preparation for glory, and if you can look on the back of your bullet and see a a breakdown of John's gospel, but chapters 11 and 12 are, you could say almost like an interlude, but it's something that is building towards the final section of the book, which is traditional called the book of glory. So this is a, a section here where Jesus has declared that his hour of glorification is at hand. That is a time when, we, he, when he will be more fully realized for who he is. And that's what happens in his glorification. So this has been building. This is everything in John's gospel has been building towards the points that we're at now as we've been reading it. And when we get to chapter 13 and the book of glory begins... He's going to have some profound things to say to us, to enlighten us as to who God is and who we are and how it is that we were meant to function in this world. In chapters 11 and 12, we had the sign of the dead being raised, Lazarus being raised, the triumphal entry, the Gentiles coming to Jesus. And all of this is significant in revealing what the kingdom of God is like and what God's character is like. These weren't just stories to entertain us until we got to the good stuff. This is all stuff here revealing to us God's intention, God's character, and it's all on display. And it leads up to the climax of this section of chapters 11 and 12. And the climax of it is a revelation of God in Christ that that should have been beyond dispute. It's a, you know, as I said, God makes himself known all the time and confusion ensues. And so we're going to look at this in the narrative and see if we can be taught how to avert some of the confusion that, that seems to ensue. By examining what takes place in this, in this text, we may be able to detect a few pitfalls that we can avoid as we're trying to, to discover God and his ways, as we're on this journey to, to be the people that God intended us to be. So if you're there in chapter John chapter 12, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting in verse 27. Jesus is still in the midst of talking to all the people after his triumphal entry. And he says, now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? Hmm. But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come when the Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. Have you ever thought, man, if God would just speak audibly from heaven, I'd be able to believe a lot easier. Like if God would just boom, say something, I'd be able to hear it and like put all my doubts to rest. And I'd say, I get it then. It'd be, it'd be great. Uh, but, but here we, in this section, we see that's really no guarantee 
that we're going to get anything. The passage begins with an allusion to the, the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John's Gospel doesn't include the time of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we get a glimpse of what was going on in Jesus' heart and mind here in this part. This, this, it actually gives us a, a glimpse into the reality of the Incarnation, Jesus' real humanity. And his real humanity was facing a real agony of, of dying to self and the agony that he was going to be experiencing on the cross, an innocent man being taken for guilty. Jesus' death did not cost him nothing in his true and full humanity. He had to experience that on our behalf. He was going to fulfill the Father's plan, and there was just no other choice in his thinking. So he braces himself by reiterating what the mission was. I'm here to glorify the Father. So Father, glorify yourself through me. Reveal who you really are. That's what he means by that. Reveal who you really are through my life. And then, boom. Well, at least that's what some people heard. John appears to have heard a voice from God. And others weren't sure. And so they ascribed it to an angelic voice or some heavenly sound of some sort. And I'm telling you, you can't get much more dramatic than this. A booming voice from heaven revealing God and his intent. But even this has mixed results among the hearers. You would think if anything's going to be ironclad, it's this. But it's not. And that's revealing something. God does what everyone complains that he doesn't do enough. He, he, he puts on a display of supernatural phenomena, but there is still confusion in the wake of that phenomena. For some, they shrug and say, huh, thunder and not a cloud in the sky. How about that? What a strange world we live in. Uh, for John, there was no question in, in this. He heard a voice speaking clear, recordable words that he was able to have put down for us. A third group is at least willing to think about it. You know, something just happened there. Maybe, you know, maybe it was an angel. It's not clear, but something heavenly, something out of the ordinary is going on here. Well, here's what I think we can glean from this as we look at this, these differing responses to all of this. Uh, as we consider these reactions, as we're pursuing God's ways, we need to be open-minded uh, about the God encounters we may have along the way. Biblically and historically, and listen, even in my own personal experiences, it really seems as though God does things in, in a way that can be rationalized and explained away if a person is determined to do it. There just seems to be a certain ambiguity with, with every divine encounter. And it also seems like that ambiguity then is used as a test of the heart. Jesus even tells them that this voice came not for his sake, but for the sake of those who were, who were there, who were present in that. Because at this voice, he says, judgment has come. And that word means separation, a dividing has taken place. And he's talking about what's going to be happening worldwide as the kingdom of God advances towards its conclusion. There are the forces that are arrayed against his kingdom that determine they want nothing to do with it. And there are those that are accepting and, and, and embracing the possibilities of that kingdom. And he talks about the power of sin and death, which is personified as the ruler of the world, the Satan. Uh, the enemy is what that means, being cast out no longer in power as God's rule breaks in to restore all things. And I want you to pay attention to how Jesus describes judgment 
in this section. Pay attention to that. How is he describing the judgment? When I say judgment is coming, what are our thoughts going to immediately? I mean, you don't have to shout it out, because, but I'm just saying that, think about that for a minute. Where do we normally go in our thinking about judgment? And yet Jesus, when he's describing it, why, it's all about restoration. It's about restoring things from the grip of the one who is bringing chaos and disorder to this whole thing. It's about restoration. It is not primarily focused on trying to punish all them wrongdoers out there. And all of this, all of this that he's describing here is secured by Jesus' death on the cross when he's lifted up. That's what he's talking about. That's the cosmic big picture in view. But the, the crowd standing there that day is a microcosm of everything that he's talking about. This division between the world's order and the revelation of God's rule, God's order to things. God revealed himself with an audible voice. Some dismissed it as a natural phenomena. Some heard God in the noise. And some were keeping an open mind. You know, I'm not sure what they heard, but sensing that it came from something outside of a rational explanation. The voice came for the benefit of those standing there. It provided an opportunity for them to realize that something's missing from their understanding of things. A wake-up call that there is something more to life than what they'd known. That, that Occam's razor isn't always going to work in this. And that at the very least, it, it provided an opportunity for investigation. What was that noise? Was it saying something? And if it was saying something, what did it say? All of those things could have been at play in that. It was an invitation to become open and receptive to God's activity in the world. And I believe that's one of those things. God is interacting with us on a regular basis, sometimes through his word, sometimes through an inward witness, uh, you know, as we're, as we're praying, or sometimes through a prompting that we have, uh, sometimes through a supernatural encounter, like what we read about here in this passage, or through one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that the New Testament talks about, where someone is, is suddenly engaged by the Holy Spirit to communicate something on God's behalf, maybe a, a message or giving an insight through the Spirit's enabling. I've had experiences where I believe God has communicated with me in some unexpected ways, ways that I wasn't anticipating, sometimes through a person sharing from their heart uh, that, that something they believed the Lord was putting on their heart, sometimes in less tangible experiences. But I, I believe I've recognized God in that. And I think we need to be open-minded to the wide variety of ways in which God can be communicating to us and, and revealing himself to us, that we can encounter God. You know, we, we most naturally, as, as American evangelical Christians, which is what we sort of represent here, sort of, uh, you know, our normal thought is that we're going to encounter God in his word. That's, you know, thanks to the Reformation and all of that. We're going to encounter God through his word or in times of prayer. And some of us are willing to go out in the, into the brave unknown of the manifestation of spiritual gifts that God could use. But what about when we encounter God just through the words of a friend who might not even have been talking about God to us at the moment, but suddenly something is said and we realize I think I just heard something there. Or, or through a song on the radio, or, or in the words of a novel, or a scene from a movie, or in the sound of the waves, or the brush of the wind across our skin, or the rustle of the leaves one time. I mean, there's all these different ways 
in which God can communicate to us. And personally, I believe I've encountered God in all of those ways that I've mentioned there. Some will say, I oh, just thundered. No big deal. Like, oh, please, the wind picked up just as you were praying for something. Look, there are gusts of wind all the time. What do you think that means? Well, I maybe, but I choose to believe that God is willing to communicate to me in whatever capacity and by whatever means he chooses to do so. And I believe I've benefited from being open-minded about that. I think we need to, because we're modern Westerners and, and, and we've excluded so many things from our worldview, I think we just need to learn to retrain ourselves to not be so quick to cynically say it thundered, to always be looking for the rational explanations behind these things. You may find them. Honestly, I think you'll always find them. Let's be open to God's voice in the sound that we hear. We may not hear it very clearly, but at very least, we can be open to all the possibilities that are present in a God who's active and at work in our lives and in this world. Leaving room for an encounter with God as we encounter the mysteries of life. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing that, that modern Western worldviews have done is the great disservice of excluding so much of what we've encountered as human beings out of our worldview because of rationalism and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so uh, the narrative goes on here. I've just, I've heard myself say this so much, I'm tired of it. So uh, verse 34, the crowd responded, we understood from, so this is after all this happens, and all of a sudden, so the crowd's picking up. It, does, it feels like a non sequitur here. It fits with everything going on. John's just putting it in here because thematically it's all together. The crowd responded, we understood from Scripture that Messiah would live forever. How can you say the Son of Man will die? Just, 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 who is the Son of Man anyway? Jesus replied, my light will shine with you for just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness can't see where they're going. Put your trust in the light while there's still time. Then you'll become children of the light. After saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. So again, we've got these themes of light and darkness. They were there at the very opening of John's gospel. If you remember all of that, he set it all up. This is all about this light breaking into the world. And Jesus has talked about the seeds of dying in the the, the, the previous text. Remember that this seed falls into the ground, dies, brings forth light. Now he's talking about being lifted up. John clearly interprets that from hindsight as him being lifted up on a cross. But, you know, all of this is, is focused around this idea of dying and those illusions of dying are what throws everybody into confusion that are listening to this. They respond that they've always understood from the law that Messiah remains forever meaning he can't die. So they're wondering how in the world their expectations fit with what it is that he's saying here. And what I find very interesting in this, in this interchange here is, is that they seem to be quoting the law when they're saying this. It seems like they're you know, backing up on, hey, here, what the Bible says, this or that or the other. But if you actually look at what they say here, uh, you know, you know, I, here's the thing. There is no, just to be clear on this, there is no Old Testament scripture that, that says the Messiah will never die. There's nothing that says that at all, anywhere in that. And so part of you, you have to puzzle through, like what, how did they come to this? And, and there's where we pay attention to what they said in that. It says, we understood. 
we've always understood. It doesn't say it was written in the law. It says this is what we've understood. In other words, they're not quoting something directly. They're expressing what has been taught to them from the scriptures by the rabbinical system of that time. The doctrine, and you know, we can see how they would have arrived at this, that easily could have been developed from places like uh, Isaiah 9, Daniel 7. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. It was talking about Messiah when he arrives. But none of these explicitly rule out the possibility of Messiah dying and rising again. In fact, Daniel even points out, you know, Messiah will be cut off. So, you know, they were just exclusively reading it a certain way. They had this rigid doctrinal construct that didn't allow for a few twists and turns to develop as God was telling this story. They believed they were enlightened about God and Messiah, and Jesus comes back at them calling their enlightenment darkness. We realize that the people there that day had trouble recognizing God because they allowed their doctrines, their doctrinal positions, their fixed positions, unmovable, those got in the way uh, of being able to, to see the light of God that was shining through Jesus. The doctrines were blocking it out. So I'm going to tread into a section here as carefully as I can. But it's something that we really, really have to pay attention to. A lesson from this that as we're pursuing God's ways, we need to be open-minded about our doctrines. And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying in this. I'm saying that I'm not saying, I am not saying the doctrine doesn't matter, who cares, anything goes, or blah, blah, blah. I am someone who has a high view of Scripture. I do. I don't think that I would have thrown my life into doing what we've been doing here for nearly 30 years if I didn't. I confess without hesitation that I believe that the Bible is God's word communicated to us, his message that he gave us. I value scripture greatly. I do. The doctrines and the theologies that we develop from these scriptures, less so. And don't get me wrong, I'm not being flippant or dismissive about the hard work that went into so many of these things. The, uh, uh, and I'm certainly not being dismissive of the basic uh, theological doctrines that would connect us with historic Christianity as it's, as it's traversed through time for 2,000 years. But there's only a handful, there really are, just a handful of what we refer to as essential doctrines that, that bind the church together. Beyond that, there's this wide uh, array of differing views and interpretations about what it is that Scripture is saying to us and, and communicating to us. And I believe we have to avoid the danger of deifying our theologies instead of seeing them as temporal tools that we use to enlarge our perception of God. Do you follow what I'm saying? Do you understand? I'm not, I'm not trying to be, you know, intentionally heretical here. I'm just saying that we've, we've, got a, we've got a tendency. And again, it's back to, oh, he's going to hammer on Western civilization. Either way, we've got a tendency as empirically minded Westerners to fixate on the things that we've discovered so far and an unwillingness to entertain any other possibilities because we're afraid of what the was, results would be. Exactly like Israel was doing when Jesus showed up. Exactly. I just think we have to consider that a, a little bit. 
And I'm not saying that our attempts at interpretation or theological constructs are wrong or should be ignored. I think they are very useful tools. I employ them all the time, a lot. But I am saying that we have to leave plenty of room for mystery and a willingness to interact and engage with these scriptures beyond just what we get handed somewhere along our history without exploring it and considering it and prayerfully examining it. Uh, So, you know, leaving room for God to still be the God who surprises us, like he does in the story that we're reading right here. Contextually, as I said, Jesus is calling their rigid doctrines darkness, the opposite of what they were hoping them to be. So that we realize there's an implicit value being placed on flexibility here as we engage God's word. One of the things that I constantly have to remind myself as someone who is essentially teaching doctrine, you know, if, if you think I'm complaining about it, I'm complaining about myself. I'm right here. I'm teaching this stuff. But I have to remind myself that I, I'm not like a chemistry teacher or a math teacher who fully understands and has tested and proven the formulas that I'm presenting here. I, I'm passing on so that we can keep building something. I'm teaching something that can simultaneously stir up understanding and mystery at the same time. That's the power of this word as far as I'm concerned. This Bible informs us and invites us to create space for wonder if we'll allow it to. Uh, We don't want to become so rigid in our doctrines as though God is a mathematic formula to be calculated and then confirmed. I believe this takes a willingness to become childlike in our faith. You talk about, I got my little grandkids, and when they're really little and they're discovering this world around them, I'm not getting a lot of combative communication from them about how the way the world works. I'm encountering a lot of wonder and amazement. Whoa! You know, you can put this in here and it comes out, wow, mind blown! It's just, you know, that sense of wonder that's present. And why do you think Jesus would constantly be saying, you've got to be like little children? He was not telling us to be childlike. Well, that's what we did. We said, okay, we'll be little children. Give me that. That's mine. <laughs> he was calling us back to this willingness to discover this, this, this intentional release of that cynicism that develops over time. I read this quote. I don't know who to attribute it to, but I like it. It says, wonder is the very essence of life. Beware always of losing the wonder. And the first thing that stops wonder is religious conviction. And evidence of salvation is that the sense of wonder is developing. Oh, man, I see right on to that. If we want to know God better, let's leave room for the mystery of him. And be willing to explore and not just set down rigid constructs that we develop. All right finishing on. Again, I'm hearing myself in my own head and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. So uh, we get to verse 37. But despite all, and this is John, he's wrapping this up now. Despite all the miraculous signs, again, uh, this is the end of chapter 12 here. So he's kind of wrapping up this section here, this, this, this uh, preparation for glory. And so he's summarizing. Despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, and he's talking about through the whole narrative, all the way back to the beginning of this book, most of the people still didn't believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who's believed our message? 
To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? But the people couldn't believe, for as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Having to do with their determined refusal to see God in in these things. Verse 41, Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and he spoke of Messiah's glory. Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders. But they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. And that's where we'll stop today. The the rejection of Jesus did not take God by surprise. It was all, all anticipated. He'd been forecasting it all along, which John quotes out of these passages from Isaiah. All these signs, but they still didn't believe. Someone raised from the dead after four days. Nah. Someone who was born blind healed. Nah. Could have happened anywhere. It's like they were prepared this wonderful feast, and all they did was argue over the placemats. This section ends like it began, talking about glory and acknowledge, you know, glory being that, that acknowledgement of, of someone or something because of who they are revealed to be. The acknowledgement of, of who Jesus really is. And they were, there were people who were genu- genuinely being persuaded by Jesus' teaching and his actions, but they chose not to follow him because of how it would make them look in the eyes of their peers. They wanted approval of their fellow humans more than they wanted God's approval. So they remained loyal to and accepted the system that was in place rather than risk following God. And here's what I think we can take from this, that as we're pursuing God's ways, we have to have a singular allegiance to Him. Open-minded about a lot of things, but singular in our allegiance to who He is. This, of course, you know, has a lot of applications from, from the student who, who doesn't want to look stupid or get rejected by their peers because of acknowledging an allegiance to God or a spouse who doesn't want to rock the boat in a marriage by claiming a loyalty to Christ. In, in this case, it's in the context of religion where, where someone doesn't want to lose the endorsement of their religious peers by entertaining a fresh perspective on God. <laughs> and man, isn't church history replete with this story over and over and over again? But at least now we've figured it out. <laughs> All of these dilemmas stem from one underlying root. And it's not a bad thing, but it is what's, it's, it's what's fueling this. It's that deep human need for acceptance and validation. We just need it. I mean, it's actually part of Maslow's hierarchy. I mean, it's there, built into the whole thing. Religion, uh, as an end in itself, is the worst of these attempts at trying to find validation. Because in the guise of seeking God, a person sets out to seek the approval of peers who will see them as holy and spiritual and provide them that sense of validation that they're okay. And I am not talking theory here. I am speaking from my own experience and how it is that I carried myself in my formative years as a Christian, spending my entire life 
trying to make sure that I was seen as towing the line and as approved by the peers around me within that religious system. Frightful, frightful all the time that someone would see me as suspicious and and withdraw that sense of validation of me as someone who belonged to God. But if we want to know God better... And again, you've heard this is nothing new coming out of these lips. That if we want to know God better, we have to start from the premise that God knows us, that he accepts us and he loves us, not as we should be, but as we are. If we can build our sense of identity on the revelation of God's unchanging love, yeah, but I messed up over here, that probably diminishes. Not at all. Not at all. If we can anchor our sense of of personhood on an unchanging affection and love for us, man, I really believe that that need to be validated by our fellow human being will be diminished in that. And look, it's all super easy for me to say. I say it Sunday after Sunday. It's all easy to just say, yeah, you know, build your identity and God's love for you. Yeah, and everybody can just nod. It's easy to nod and say, yes, yes, yes. It is a completely different thing to try to live this out, to really, really live this out from a, from a sense of acceptance of this and a belief in, in this. I mean, this is an ongoing daily struggle for most of us if we were going to be honest with ourselves. That we really, really want validation and we'd really like to have it from the people around us. And look, what's interesting is, is we could talk about this as though the need for validation is some sort of flaw. Like, this, you know, there's the problem. You want to be validated. What's your problem? Well, no, that need for validation is deeply inherent in us as human beings. That is a part of what makes us human beings. We can't just dismiss that and say, we don't need that. It's, it's a natural human instinct to belong, to be validated, to be loved. But if we look at God's original intent for creation then we'd realize that 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 validation that we naturally, intrinsically crave was meant to come from God. It was built into the creation story. It was there. When God created the order of this world six times, he says, it's good what he's making. And then the seventh time he says it, Genesis 1.31, after he created humanity, he even tacks on his very good He validated us completely. That was his intent. That's where his heart still lies. He validated us because he loves us. When we're pursuing his ways, his intent for life, it means we leave off the hamster wheel of looking for that basic natural thing that we have as humans, that look, that need for validation. Quit looking for it from our human, fickle, broken people around us, the people that are just like us, and turn our sights to God's validation of us. He loves us. He loves you. He loves you. Man, if there's something going to be put on my gravestone, uh, that's what it needs to be. He loves you. I'll never stop saying it. I'll never get tired of saying that part. God loves you. I have no means of communicating the reality of that. I, I, I had the privilege of encountering once 
in a situation much like what's described here. But I'm telling you, He loves us. He loves us. And if He loves us, then everything else is okay. Right? Because what else is going to get to you if He loves you? What did Paul say? If God is for us, well, who the heck do they have? Well, he didn't say it like that, but, but it was similar. <laughs> if God's on our side, who can be against us? If we can believe that he loves us, then we can have space to explore who God is without fear, without hedging things for someone else's approval because we hear his voice saying, she is very good. He is very good. And that's only possible because I know I can hear you say it. Oh, yeah, but you don't know me, Rob. I'm not very good. Yeah, but it's, it's all made possible because one got lifted up. All possible because we're now included with Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. It is the core, the central core of what the biblical narrative is trying to communicate to us. He loves us. So, Let's set out to know him more. Let's be open-minded about God encounters we may have, even as today unfolds. Let's be single-minded in our allegiance to, to the one who loved us unto death. And let's learn his ways and let our lives be shaped by him, shaped by this unthinkable, boundaryless love that God has for us. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, if you're able to, please. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this revelation. And it's, it's here. It's present every time we open this up and we're looking at it. We keep finding these moments where your sacrificial love for us is represented. That you, you determined to glorify your Father by being lifted up on our behalf, lifted up on a cross that did not belong to you. Lord, I just pray for every person here that you, by your Spirit, in some tangible way, will give us encounters with you that reinforce the reality of your love for us. <sighs> Lord, you know I have spent my life facing the charges of being someone who preaches a a grace that's incompatible with righteousness. Lord, show the people that you love how you love them and help us to recognize that is the root of righteousness. That's the means by which we come into real transformation in you. It's only through that, God. It's only through that. Your love for us. Help us to receive it, accept it, build our lives on it, and then begin to demonstrate that out into the world. I believe it makes a difference. So do this, Father, by your Spirit. Do this. Do this in our lives as we've gathered here today, as we go about our week. Reveal your love for us in tangible ways. Maybe in ways that take us by surprise. Maybe in ways that we have to ponder for just a moment. Was that, was that God? I ask you, Lord, do that.
for us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.